All right, we are in James chapter 2 this morning, last part of James chapter 2, the last half of it. Contains a verse that is interesting for us to consider, James 2.24. says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. We're going to go through all of James 2.14 to 26, but I want to start with that verse because that verse should give us pause as Bible-believing Christians we hold to the fact that salvation is by grace through faith and that faith is alone. We, we often speak as, as Reformed believers of what's called the five solas of the Reformation, five Latin phrases that sort of encapsulated what the Reformers were, were putting forth, truths that we continue to cling to today. They were battling teaching from the Roman Catholic Church that was very much a works-oriented form of salvation, and they were saying, no, these, these are the truths we hold to. Scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, and to the glory of God alone. And Simply put, we believe that God's Word is the authority. God's Word is sufficient. When it comes to speaking to us the truth of what it is that saves sinners, we find that in Scripture. It is by Scripture alone that we get God's Word to us, and that is the final authority. The salvation of sinners can only be through Jesus Christ alone. It is on the basis of His death and resurrection that we are saved. By grace alone stresses the fact that from beginning to end, it is all a good work of God's grace. His saving of us is is God at work in us, ultimately meaning that all of the glory goes back to him. We cannot congratulate ourselves for saving ourselves in some way. And so that leaves sola fide, by faith alone. The only way that a sinner is redeemed, that rescued from, from sin, and saved into the the kingdom of God, brought into the body of Christ, is by faith alone. passage that really articulates these truths so well is Romans chapter 3. I just want to read you a few verses from Romans chapter 3, because this helps set what some see as a a conflict with James chapter 2. And so Romans chapter 3, just starting in verse 23, says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. It is explicit in this passage. We are, we are all sinners, and the only way to be saved by a holy God is by that God acting to send His sinless Son, offering His Son to be the, the Savior, to be the one who would bear our sins and the punishment that we deserve. And so Christ alone becomes the offering that could remove our guilt and remove the judgment that we deserve from God. And he stresses it in this passage. That was all of God's grace. It is his kind gift to us, his gracious act to us to send his son to die in our place. And so we are made right on account of that. And so it is for his glory. And as he stresses here, we cannot boast. We cannot claim to have done this, to have accomplished this on our own. We must put our faith entirely in Jesus. So 
that raises what I'm going to suggest to you is a dilemma for some that I think we're going to try to resolve today. Uh, but it's James 2.24 and Romans 3.28. Romans 3.28 says, For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. And James 2.24 says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. One of the, the chief voices of the Reformation, Martin Luther, struggled with the book of James on this account, and he called it an epistle of straw, a letter of straw. Luther was not so much arguing that James didn't belong in the New Testament as he was saying that it's not as authoritative as other books in the New Testament. And he described that there are some, as, as Luther said, some that show you Christ and teach you all that is necessary and salvatory for you to know, even if you were never to see or hear any other book or doctrine. And Luther placed in that category the Gospel of John, 1 John, 1 Peter, and many of the epistles of Paul, especially Romans and Galatians and Ephesians. But having said that, and, and sort of classifying those as being particularly authoritative, Luther then went on to write, therefore, St. James' epistle is really an epistle of straw compared to these others, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. His point, again, not so much to take James out, but to, he used 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where it says to build your foundation out of precious stones uh, and gold and not out of wood and hay and stubble, and that's what he's comparing James to. He's saying it's just not as, it's not as foundational, it's not of the same nature as of the other books. It's not as refined in, in that it seems to lack. So as we come to this last half of James chapter 2, I, I want to pose two questions that we're going to talk about this morning. The first one's the theological question, which is how do we reconcile James with Romans? Are they saying different things or, or are they compatible? But then there's the crucial question of, of practical theology that James puts forward because what James is getting at here is what we've talked about over these last few weeks from the balance of chapter 1 into chapter 2. Can you profess to have faith in Jesus Christ and yet consistently live in a way that does not live out that profession? Can life not match profession? Can belief stand and, and, and call yourself a Christian even if the words and the, the actions don't seem to match up? Can you say you have a faith that, that maybe lacks credibility because that faith is not demonstrated in Christ-like works? James 2.26, when he ends all of this, he will say, faith apart from works is dead. And so what, what James is saying here is crucial for us. Because he's, he's saying, my brothers, he, he's, he's assuming that these are believers, but he's also challenging them to look at their lives and, and, and even to think about those in their midst who may say, of course I'm a Christian, and yet there seems to be this mismatch between life and profession. So let's take up the theological question first. This is where, as one commentator puts it, this is where James has achieved notoriety. It's over this question of, is he somehow contradicting the doctrine of justification by faith, which we fundamentally hold to as believers, that one is justified by faith? If, if, if we can't answer that question as yes, then the practical theology question is moot. So we need to deal with the theological one first. Both Romans 3.28 and James 2.24 use the word justified, and you, you can see it in those. It's the same Greek word, almost identical in form. It's a Greek verb, slight variation form, but it, it, it's the same word. One is justified by faith apart from works, Romans says. And then James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Justification means to be declared 
right before God. It is a, a, a legal definition of a position we receive in order to stand before our judge. To be justified is now to be able to stand before the creator of the universe. We enter life as sinners. We are conceived in sin. We enter life as rebels. We are unable to simply present ourselves to God because we are in a state of hostility to him, scripture says. The only way we we stand before God is to face his judgment for our sin. We have no claim on him and we are deserving of his wrath. To be justified is to be declared as one whose guilt has been removed. It is to be able to stand before the holy God of the universe and be forgiven and have our sin not stand between him and us. It is to have our guilt removed and to be declared now as just, as, as righteous. In other words, we have received a right standing before him. Paul is clearly explaining this in Romans chapter 3. He's writing about how, com- how one comes to this, this place of salvation. His point at the very start of Romans 3, we go back and read, if you, if you read the whole chapter, he starts it by saying, there's none righteous. There's no one who lays a claim on God because we are all sinners. We are all hostile to God. We are all in need of salvation. And Romans 3 says this in as strong a language as as Paul possibly can to say, you cannot come to God on your own merit. You cannot present yourself to God and say, I'm a pretty good person and I think I deserve to, to, to be with you and to be in relationship with you because all are guilty. And that's why Romans 3.23 famously says, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. So, so the question then is the one that we should ask today and the one that Luther asked in the 16th century is, how then can I be made right before God? Luther is struggling having tried the, to, to, to be a monk and tried to do all of the, the right religious understanding, all the rituals, all the things that he could do because he's desperate to know how can I be right before God? And that should be our question. Is there anything I can do? And Romans 3 says, if you're asking what you can do to be made right before God, there's nothing. And, and, and that's the point that Paul is emphasizing in Romans chapter 3 because if you could do something to get yourself to a point of righteousness, then you would boast. And that's what God does not permit. You and I know how this works, right? If I, if I do perfect on an exam and you and I are talking about that exam and you say, yeah, I missed a couple, I may not say, nah, in your face, but I'm probably thinking it, ah, I'm just a little bit better. I got a few more questions right. I'm, I'm perfect. I got 100, right? We know how this works, this boasting, and God does not allow boasting in his presence. And so Romans 3 is clear that that you cannot come to the throne of God with a list that says, hey God, I know the bar is high, but I've been really generous, and when I've done bad things, I've done good things to offset them, and the bad things I've done haven't really been terrible, and so I think it all works out and we're good, right? And scripture says all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. All are remaining as objects of his wrath and in need of salvation. And that's why the Father sent the Son to endure the cross in our place, to take our sins upon himself and to die in our place. The only man who actually was perfect and sinless was Jesus. And that's why he was able to be the perfect sacrifice for sinners like you and I. And that is our only hope. And that's why Romans 3 says you must put your faith fully in him. You must believe in his life and death and resurrection. Put your faith in Christ and trust his work as having saved you. That's what Paul's saying. It's not your works. It's not your observance of God's law. 
It's not some scorekeeping that gets you into heaven because you will fall short. It is only by faith in Christ. So then what is James saying? I think James is entirely compatible, but let's, let's read the whole passage and, and we'll see his argument and then we'll go back and look through it. So starting James 2, verse 14, right down through the end of the chapter. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. I want to come back to the beginning of that in verse 14, but, but I want to take a couple of minutes and just focus in on verses 21 through 23, where James uses Abraham as a focal point in illustrating what he's saying about salvation and salvation involving uh, works, faith and works, and that intersection. Because in, in Romans, right after Paul taught all that he taught about salvation by grace through faith and said no one is justified by works of the law but only by faith, the person he uses to illustrate his point is Abraham. He does that in chapter 4 of Romans, follows right on what we've read in Romans 3.28. He says in Romans 4, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Again, you've got the seeming look of a contradiction here, even in how they handle Abraham, because Paul has, has just made it clear, Abraham does not come to God on the basis of works. He believes God, and it, righteousness is credited to him. It is on the basis of faith, and yet we've just got done reading in James in verses 21 through 23 when he says, you see that faith was active along with his works. Faith was completed by his works, and he emphasizes the fact, verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Both go back to Abraham, because Abraham holds this significant place. He is the father of the Jewish people. He is the preeminent example to point back to. As a New Testament writer who's writing largely to Jewish believers, if you can bring Abraham into the story, it, it, it gets people's attention. And so Abraham, we know, is made right with God by virtue of faith. Abraham was promised that he and his wife Sarah in their old age would have a son. They had been childless up until that point. And the promise was, you will have a son, and in fact, you will have a nation that descends from you 
through that son. So a miraculous provision of a son will allow you to become the father of this nation that you will be unable to count. Genesis 15, 5 and 6, God brings Abraham outside and says, look toward heaven, number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord and it Count it to him, and, and he counted it to him as righteousness. God credited to Abraham righteousness on account of his faith, his belief in that promise. We know that takes place, but years later, after that son is born, that son Isaac, he's now a, a young boy, and what does God command Abraham to do? He says, you are to take Isaac, and you are to go up on the mountain, and you are to present Isaac to me as a sacrifice. You are to take Isaac's life in sacrifice, and that is to be an offering to me. So at at this moment, Abraham's faith is now being tested. We know that Abraham obeyed, and he took Isaac, and he bound Isaac, and he was prepared to take Isaac's life, and, and that was stopped. God provided another sacrifice, but Abraham's faith was demonstrated. It was proven. His faith was tested, and it was proven. God God had promised to Abraham countless heirs. You're not going to be able to count them. It's like the stars in the sky. And Abraham so believed that promise that he knew in that moment on the mountain that even if he took Isaac's life, God would have to raise Isaac from the dead or do something similarly miraculous because God was going to keep his word because he believed God's promise and he acted on that promise. And that's what James is showing us. Romans says Abraham believed God and was justified by faith, and now James says that that faith is a living faith. It's an obedient faith. It's one that responds to God and his leading and direction in his word, a faith that is real and consistent with what one professes, is ready to follow the Lord's commands. Abraham was Paul's illustration of justification by faith, and he is James's illustration of the fact that saving faith is a living faith. That, that that faith is also demonstrated by one's life, by their words and their actions. The difference between Paul and James is not really over the issue of faith. Both are talking about saving faith. The difference is over the issue of works. Paul is saying works, particularly works of the law, Rituals, doing things, cannot save you. you. You cannot do enough stuff to get you saved. But James is saying, just as Jesus himself said, that when you are transformed, when you are saved by faith, works will flow from that. By God's grace, there will be fruit that will be produced from your life because that's God's design. That, that when there is faith in Christ, there is a life that, that begins to match that. A real faith will be shown by genuine works. Jesus says these kinds of things. Matthew 12, 37, by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus is not saying there's some spoken formula here that if you just speak these words, you'll be justified. Rather, he's, he's teaching what is consistent with everything Jesus taught about our words. Your words come from your heart. They come from who you are, and your heart must be changed. You need a new heart. You need to be transformed, and that comes by faith in Christ. And, and so when that that change takes place, it begins to change what comes out of your mouth. Jesus, again, in the story of the vine and the branches, John 15, 8, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Fruit bearing is a demonstration of faith in Jesus Christ. It is evidence of faith in Jesus Christ. 
So this truth that, that faith in Jesus is demonstrated in a Christ-like life was not just Jesus and James. Paul believed it too. Paul, Paul taught the same thing in various ways. Romans 1.5, Paul says, the grace of Jesus Christ brings about what he said was the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Faith in Jesus Christ produces an obedience, a faith that is obedient. In, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, he reiterates that we are not saved by any keeping of the law rituals, but by faith working through love. Faith in Jesus Christ is what now causes us, impels us to love God and love neighbor as self, to obey Jesus' commands to do those things. Those works are the natural outflow of faith in Christ, not the opposite. The works don't bring us to Christ. We are saved by faith, and then the works are produced as a result of that. And so Romans 3 and James 2 go hand in hand. James is not endorsing a works-oriented form of salvation, but he's talking about this true saving faith of the gospel. When, when you have been saved, your life will be changed by that, by God's design and his grace that saving faith is alive within the believer. Which gets us back then to the practical theology. And the question is asked plainly in verse 14 when James himself says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? That is, that question is simple, it is profound, and yet it is crucial for every one of us who professes to be a believer in Jesus Christ. I'll, I'll phrase it this way for, for us to think about. What difference is your faith in Jesus Christ making in your life? What difference is your faith in Jesus Christ making in your life? It, it should be affecting you. It should be changing you. It should be changing how you, you think and act. And if it's not, then to, to use James's formula, why would you claim to believe in him? If, if Jesus Christ is not changing your life, then, then why, why claim allegiance to Jesus Christ? Because faith in Jesus Christ means that you receive the righteousness of Christ. So why, why would you align yourself with him? Why would you claim to belong to him and yet not desire to, to be like him, not, not want to see him change your life. And, and James is saying this is, this is irreconcilable. If your life is not becoming more like Jesus, why would you declare allegiance to Jesus? He, uh, he uses an illustration here, and, and this is very much we've, we've seen in the book of James. He wants to focus our attention on the fact that, and, and, and clearly this is an issue in the first century that he continues to bring this up. He, he points us back to people who are in need, people who, who are in need of care in some way. He started this back in chapter 1, verse 9, when he first talked about the lowly man and the rich one. And then he went on through chapter 1, and he uh, spoke of religion that is pure and undefiled as that which ministers to widows and orphans. He's, he's making the point that if you are a, a follower of Jesus Christ, you are drawn toward those that the, the world might see as unlovely. You are drawn toward those that the world might have little regard for. Certainly in the first century that was the case, and some of that's still the case today, that the, the world sort of sets some people aside while it's drawn to those that are popular and beautiful and rich and all of these things. The one with faith toward Jesus Christ follows Jesus towards those who are unlovely. And so he's been making this point, and he carried it over. We saw it last week in chapter 2 when he condemns the sin of partiality. It's where he 
judges the, those who would, who would dare make judgments about others based purely on their appearance. They're, they're, they're deciding whether or not I'm going to lift my head and recognize you based on your appearance. And, and James chapter 2 has already condemned that in the first half, that sin of partiality. All of that leads right into this hypothetical in verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for their body, what good is that? He's, he's making it fairly simple for us because he's actually narrowing it down to the Christian community, and he's saying if you've, if you've got a, a professing believer within the community, a brother or sister who is struggling, they, they, they are, they're going through hard times, and you look the other way, or you just give them some sort of, um, I don't know, superficial kind of greeting. You're just kind of going through the motions with them. It, it, you know, it's the old, you ask, how are you? But you really don't want the whole answer if it's going to be one of these long, complicated answers sort of thing. If that's, if that's your approach, he says, what good is that? How, how do you do that to somebody in the community? How is that like Jesus? Is that imitating Jesus to see somebody who is struggling and say, good luck? Hope it all works out, because that's, that's essentially what he's describing here. And especially if you have the capacity to help in some way. How can you not move toward them? One commentator puts it this way, James put the insensitive, inactive believer on the side of the unjust, unrighteous rich who have neither mercy nor compassion. If you are uncaring toward those in the family of faith, if you are too busy, uninterested, he says, then you are not following Jesus. Jesus would walk toward them. Jesus would, would not go, ah, too busy for you. Hope somebody else takes it. Good luck. Hope somebody else gets you because I can't right now. James was, was back to his opening question when he says, what, is, what good is that? How is that faith in Jesus if it doesn't act like him? And if that's what you call faith, something that doesn't, comfort the suffering or care for them, the ones in your midst, then he wrote in verse 17, that faith is dead. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Let's read on, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? James has a bit of a chip on this one. Do, do, you, do I really need to show you this, you fool? Is this not coming clear at this point? Let me be explicit for you. This is, this is sort of the defining element, if you will, of, of James's argument, because he's now marrying the theology with the practical theology. The doctrine and the, the practice are intersecting at this point. He's saying, if you've got the doctrine down, if you profess to accurately understand the gospel and you can articulate the gospel clearly, and yet that belief doesn't make a difference in what you say or do. If you've got this accurate belief and yet it's not coupled with a life that is seeking to be like Christ, then he says there's something wrong. He says your, your faith is similar to that of the demons. They know God is real. They know that God is one. They understand about the identity of Jesus Christ. They know that, but they hate it. They hate him. They despise him. And so they believe it. He says, you believe, you do well, but they don't act on it. Instead, they despise God. You can be able 
to correctly articulate the gospel and, and understand and speak sound Christian doctrine. But if you repeatedly judge people sinfully like the world judges people, if you love the world and the things in the world, if you refuse to call sin what it is, if you participate in sin and it doesn't bring any real sense of conviction or change to your heart, if you do not actively love the body of Christ and love his word and, and want to meditate on his word, if you do not long to fellowship and serve with other believers and worship together with them, then, then what James 2 is saying is that, that should give you pause. That should cause you to stop and say, is this understanding, this profession, matching this life? And if not, what's wrong? Professing to believe a body of doctrine is not unusual. For generations, it's changed now, but for generations, the polling in the United States would say that a vast majority of Americans would claim to be Christian, even though there wasn't really holiness permeating throughout the, the culture. Um, because it, it's one thing to, to accept that Christian doctrine sounds like this, and, and I believe God created it, and I believe that Jesus was born and died because we got Christmas and Easter after all, and so I can, I can believe all that. But does, it, does the, the life match the belief? It's a living faith, and that's what James is teaching. And so he's, he's used the illustration of Abraham. We've talked about that one already. And then he takes one more illustration. Look down at verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. It's fascinating. James uses Abraham as an illustration of faith and works and the fact that the works go along with the faith. He's taken and used the, the patriarch of all who come to faith in God, for all of us, Jew or not, if we have come to faith in God, we, we can look back to see Abraham as sort of the foundational point of believing God, and then his faith is shown to be true as he presents Isaac for sacrifice. But, but here is something that is so much James. For a writer who has been constantly reminding us that there are people in all places in life, there are people in all sorts of social status, and, and there's a question here of whether or not we will look up and recognize them, it should come as no surprise that James moves from the faith of the, of, of the Jews' most revered patriarch to the faith of a Gentile woman who was a prostitute. He has described them when he First says of Abraham, um, verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified? And then you come to verse 25, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified? You see the contrast? Here's Abraham who is, he's our father. He's that great patriarch we look to. And here's Rahab who is a prostitute, who is, a, who is famous for her sin. He's using them both to illustrate the same reality. That faith without works is dead. Rahab is introduced to us in the Old Testament book of Joshua. She lived in a Canaanite city, the city of Jericho. It is, a, it is the, the gateway city to the promised land. When the Israelites have been brought out of slavery, they have wandered in the wilderness, they are now going to come into the promised land and cross the Jordan River. The, the land that God promised to Abraham, that this would be the land where your descendants would be, in order to come into that land, the first city they are going to have to take is Jericho. And so Joshua, who's leading the Israelites at that point, sends two spies 
to go in and, and look ahead at what they face. And he says to them, especially Jericho, he wants them to check out. And so they go into Jericho, and the king finds out that they are there. They, when they go there, they go to Rahab's house. Now, this isn't calling into question their morality, the fact that Rahab is a prostitute. They go there because that's probably the place where they get the most cover, the place where people would go, oh, just two ordinary bums from outside of town who go and go to the prostitute's house. And nobody's thinking anything of these two guys, that they are spies. The king, though, gets word that, that there are these spies, and so he sends his men to capture them. But Rahab hid them, and she deceived the king about their whereabouts, and then she sent them back on their way in a different way so that they would be saved. Rahab said this in Joshua 2, 9 through 13. She says this to the spies. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father, mother, brothers, and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Rahab is testifying to these spies. We all know where you're coming from. Our, our city here has heard about you guys. Your reputation precedes you. And we know how you miraculously crossed the Red Sea, that shouldn't have been possible, and we know what you've done to some cities that are on the other side of the Jordan. And she believes right doctrine. I mean, Rahab articulates clear right doctrine when she says in verse 11, the Lord, Yahweh, your God, he is Elohim. He is the God in the heavens and the God of the earth. And so she is... She is articulating what would be in a systematic theology book about who God is. She understands who he is and believes it. But not only did she believe it, she acted on it. I mean, here's the, here's the contrast in the city of Jericho. She has acknowledged that our hearts melted within us. All of our city knows that you are serving some kind of powerful deity, and we all got discouraged when you were coming because we knew what that could mean. We all believed a certain set of doctrine about who you follow. Rahab acted on that. Rahab believed to the point that she risked her own life, not really once, but twice. She risks her life with the king by deceiving the king and, and knowing that the king could come back at her at any point and kill her. And she risks her life in that she's trusting these two spies, that when ultimately the Israelite army comes, they will not just wipe out her and her family. She believes that Yahweh is Elohim, and so she risks everything because of that faith, on account of that trust that the Lord is the one who is in control of all this. Hebrews 11.31 says, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Rahab was not justified by works alone, but by a faith that is accompanied by works. Both are present. There is belief 
And then there is the action that, that verifies that belief, if you will, that demonstrates that. And that's why James finishes with verse 26, and he says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. A body without a soul is lifeless, but so too a soul lives within a body. Together, body and soul make for the, the, the complete living person. And James concludes with that analogy to affirm the fact that Rahab did not have one or the other. She believed that Yahweh was Elohim, and she staked her whole life on that faith and believed that he would save her. Two together, actions fulfilling faith, actions Actions that live out the royal law, as, as James called it last week, which is love God, love neighbor as self. Actions that, that show that I have put my trust in Jesus Christ, who said those were the two great commands. They boiled down to that. A faith that is not accompanied by works is dead. Think about Abraham and, and Rahab, what they have in common at this point. Abraham has taken what is one of his greatest possessions in all the world, in all of his life, he has taken his son, his beloved son, and he has put his life on the altar because of his faith. Abraham was, was willing to put the most treasured child in his life because of the certainty of his trust in the Lord. Rahab's faith nearly cost her life and the lives of her family. She risked everything on her belief in Yahweh. And so I go back and ask you the question that I asked earlier is what difference is your faith in Jesus Christ making in your life today? How is your faith in Jesus Christ shaping what you do, what you like, what you, uh, what you speak, how you love others sacrificially? How do you see faith in Jesus Christ transforming you? How do, how do others see faith in Jesus Christ transforming you. When they look at you at, at work or in your neighborhood or at school or out at play on Friday night or whatever it is, do they, do they, see, do they see something that demonstrates that there is, there is a faith in Christ that governs even the words that come out of my mouth? Is your faith in Jesus Christ changing how you respond to, to criticism, to stress? We, we face those things all the time, to pain, to hardship? Is your faith in Jesus Christ changing that? Does your faith in Jesus Christ cost you anything? Is your, your reputation ever at stake because you're going to obey Christ in this circumstance, even if other people will take that as a reason to insult you? Among unbelieving family or friends, are, 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 is your faith in Christ ever challenged in some way because you're obeying Christ and it seems so ludicrous to them that you would do such a thing? Are you willing, am I willing, to lose people, to lose things that are precious? Because I, I see Christ as most treasured above all. And I love him, and I will therefore obey him and serve him above all else. Because it says, faith apart from works is dead. Listen, this is, this is one of those passages of Scripture that is, that is convicting, but, but here's the hope. If, if your trust is in Jesus Christ and you've been picked on in some way by one of those questions, there's an area where you're feeling convicted, here's, here's the joy. There is grace. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, then he is urging you and I to repent of our sin, of our 
our eagerness for the world and sometimes our lack of eagerness for the unlovely. He's urging us to repent and telling us there is grace to come and, and obey me, to live out a faith that is alive and well and that reflects on, on our Savior, Jesus Christ. There is grace in that. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as a people who are praising you for what we've read this morning about the truths of salvation. Uh, Lord, we, if we were to stop partway through Romans 3, we would see all condemned, all facing judgment for our sin, none being righteous, no, no ability to, to somehow sway you toward us uh, in a way that would get us on your good side. Lord, we would be hopeless. But Scripture goes on and is explicit that it is not by keeping of the law or deeds that we earn salvation, but rather by trusting fully in Jesus Christ. And so I pray for any here this morning who are struggling with these things, who are perhaps trying to find a way to achieve some sort of status with you based on being a good person. I pray that today would be the day when they would come to see that there is only one who is truly good, and that is Jesus and Jesus suffered and died in the place of sinners so that he might bring them to the Father, that he might cause them to receive his righteousness. Pray today that if there's anyone here not trusting in Christ, that you would make Christ and his gospel more glorious than ever before and cause them to, to believe and embrace Jesus Christ in faith. And Father, for myself and my brothers and sisters here, I pray that this morning's passage would not be one we would gloss over lightly, but Lord, that we would, we would continue to, to ponder the truths of it and continue to ask for your help and depend on you to help us to live out our faith. Forgive us when our words and our actions seem to run counter to what we profess, that we would even show that sort of evidence to others is a, uh, just not what we want to do. It just does not show well back on who we believe our Savior is. And so we ask for your help and your spirit. We ask for your word to continue to instruct us and give us joy in following Jesus, joy in being like Christ, in responding like him. Help us by your spirit. Help us by your word and by the brothers and sisters in our community. That when we are living, speaking, acting in a way that is inconsistent, that we would have brothers and sisters who love us enough to, like James, say, hey, wait, this, this isn't matching up, and would call us to, to turn back to you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for showing yourself true to your promises over and over again from Abraham on up to today. And we pray all of these things in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.